Hello and welcome to Newspeak, the New Culture Forum's look at the weekly news agenda. I'm here as usual with Rafe Hadelman, who our senior fellow and royal commentator, and Neil Anderson, a former director of Migration Watch. Um, before we actually look at the news, I just want to say we had our conference uh, the weekend, last weekend on Saturday in Birmingham. If you came, uh, it was great to see you. I do hope you had a good time. It was a fantastic success, actually. In fact, next year we're going to have to have a bigger venue, which uh, gives you an idea of how many people came. Uh, lovely, lovely event. If you were there, thank you very much for joining us. Um, this week we're going to be talking about, well, first of all, have we seen the final end of Diane Abbott? I know that that will cause great sadness uh, to you if we have. Uh, also, is the new mig illegal migration bill yet another false dawn? And finally, did you celebrate St George's Day or were you like Narinda Kaur in thinking that basically we are just the worst country that the world has ever seen? Uh, first off, gentlemen, um, Diane Abbott, uh, I want to ask this, she apologised for this now infamous letter that she wrote to the Observer. Do you think an apology is enough in a situation like this, Neil? Um, well, I, firstly, I, I can't help but be slightly um, amused at the fact that she subsequently said it had been sent uh, inadvertently and it was just a, a draft um, and that clearly she had meant something completely different. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, <laughs> apologies um, are very easy to say. We know that Diane Habert has spent her entire political mm. career essentially calling out racism where, wherever she has decided it is and, and to, however farcically she has done so and it, it is somewhat um you know it's summary justice now that she finds herself hoist on her own petard um additionally you know she you know whether or not she actually said anything that she should be um, hauled over the coals for is, is a is a matter of debate i mean she was expressing an opinion um, that you know, and we believe in free speech, and we believe in free expression. Mm. I don't think it was anything malicious, you know, directly in what she said. I do think, however, uh, in fact, that you know, for us to even tie ourselves up in you know the argument around anti-Semitism and sort of pointing fingers and that actually sort of plays into the same area that the left have consistently operated for a long time. And actually, I think we should just rise above it. I mean, she expressed an opinion that you know was completely deluded and nonsensical based upon this whole hierarchy and mm. transactional um uh sorry not transactional intersectional um sort of stratification of people's victimhoods and mm, mm. uh experiences of prejudice all of this nonsense that really for intelligent people or anyone really with more than two brain cells it's completely nonsensical and it's really mm. a, a non-point i think mm. do you think i mean i what i found interesting actually was the way in which uh <clears throat> well, interesting, predictable, but there were some people like Robert Peston and a couple of, there was, I think it's John McTiernan, came out and said, for goodness sake, give her a break. This is, a, this is the most strange letter, you know. The, the kind of, the amount of space they were giving her, you know, compared to what would happen if it had been someone on, if you like, our side. Absolutely. I was amazed at those people who were trying to find a way out for Diane Abbott here trying to say, oh, well, she's been a victim of racism, therefore we, we must be forgiving of her. It's like saying, oh, well, this person used to be abused, now he's abusing other people, so we mustn't punish them for that. Mm -hmm. you know, give me a break over this, you know. If you live by the sword, 
you die by the sword. Diane Abbott is a notorious race grifter and race baiter. He has held the most awful accusations against people on the right, accusing them of racism for the most harmless and innocuous mm. statements. Mm. Now, you tell me, if somebody on the right had been accused of something equally bad as this, would she be forgiving of that? Mm. No, she'd want their head on a platter. And I'm terribly sorry, but this woman has exposed her true racist element. You know, she's made a big deal about saying that, oh, in, in, in the West, there's a sort of a, a racial hierarchy where we elevate anti-Semitism above Islamophobia, above black stuff. Well, she's actually shown that she's the one who thinks that there's a racial hierarchy and blacks are on the top and Jews are at the bottom of that. And I'm sorry, this has shown us a real glimpse of her true character and her true self. The whole notion that this was a draft letter sent by mistake is a complete nonsense. This was, was an email sent seven days before publication. Mm -hmm. Then they went back to her and she had to resubmit the letter a second time with her address attached to it. So she had plenty of time to review this. This just goes to show actually, and she gave this groveling apology. The apology she really meant was, I'm terribly sorry for giving you a true glimpse of my true opinions. Yes, yes. I wanted to send you a sanitized version yes. of the racial of the racist diatribe that I actually, I actually wrote. There should be no forgiveness on this point. It's, up, it's obviously up to the Labour Party how they go forward. It's up to her constituents whether they vote her in or out. But uh, I don't think we should, be we should be allowing people to try to excuse her actions. I think that uh, Matthew, yes, Matthew Goodwin actually made the point that uh, on the BBC that she's been given a free pass on so many occasions, basically because this cancellation thing only works one way. I don't care what anyone says, right? If this had been someone on the, on the right, job gone the lot, no question. Um, but, um, you know, this, this idea of a free pass, you know, it's sort of, uh, it is something which just would never ever apply to the likes of you or me, would it? No, absolutely not. Um, and we know that, you know, we know, we know that the entire, um, all of the, the sort of, <laughs> the elements that are in the position to, to challenge this publicly, um, you know, whether it's the media, um, you know, the, the, the political establishment, her, her colleagues in parliament, um, you know, largely are going to sort of, you know, there will be some tolerance for this in a way that there never would have been, of mm, course, mm. Um, from the other side. But that's the system that we unfortunately are currently sort of corralled into. And, and, and you know, we have to operate, we operate within very different, um, uh, you know, uh, windows of expression. Mm. Um, and ours is very, very restricted. She was making um, this kind of general point, wasn't she, about she was making a, uh, a distinction between racism and good old-fashioned prejudice, as she called it. And she was sort of applying it to white people face prejudice, so do redhead, so do redhead people, so do Jewish people. This was what I found. So just historically illiterate. Well, I mean, and sickening. They're trying to equate the, the Jewish mm. experience in the Holocaust yes. with being called, you know, a, you know ginger nuts in, in, the, in the playground in mm. the school for having red head, trying to equate the two as being somehow equal. And then the audacity of this woman to say, oh, well, in the, in the, in the 19, you know, in the mid 20th century, um, Jews didn't have to sit at the back of the bus like black people had to sit at the back of the bus. No, my dear Diane Abbott, because, but they had to sit in cattle trucks mm. going to Auschwitz and they had to actually mm. s stand in gas chambers being gassed. Give me a break. It's mm. absolutely unforgivable and atrocious. That, and you know, is this woman absolutely stupid or is she willfully ignorant or was she under the influence of something? Because quite frankly, I don't see how a sane person could have written something like that. Mm. But then it goes to this broader issue of today where you know a lot of the race, the ideas of race are so now 
rooted in American culture mm -hmm. that people are incapable of seeing experiences of other races outside of America, such as in Europe in the 1930s mm -hmm. and the 1940s. That's why you had Whoopi Goldberg, exactly. for example, saying mm -hmm. that the whole issue of, of, of the Holocaust was just one group of whites against another group of whites, completely failing to understand the experience of Jews, where they were seen absolutely as a different race, separate completely, you know, not even human. I mean, if that's if you want mm -hmm. a definition of racism, surely that's it. And it's, it's, it's such an ignorant and pig-ignorant uh, view of race to just essentially view it purely on dramatic differences in, in skin tone. Yeah, I mean, this entire, it's based upon the entire intellectual or non or anti-intellectual bedrock of this entire way of thinking. Though. The, the complete idea that there is a, a hierarchy of victim, there is a hierarchy of perpetrator, you know, that, that everything rooted in, um, you know, this, this identity politics frame um, that that really isn't grounded in any historical reality. It isn't grounded in any intellectual um, sort of uh, uh, um, form that, that is useful or, or comprehensible. Um, it simply is a set of um, false notions that are constantly and have constantly been promulgated by the left for many decades now and slowly sort of permeated their way into a huge amount of our public discourse and political life such that you know the the fact that we are the fact that these things are even you know <laughs> that we're even having to have this conversation mm. points towards a serious defect in the quality of public debate and conversation you know oh, full stop yes. you know, and, and you know the intersectional um uh, notion where you know of this hierarchy somewhat points towards a very uh you, know, it, you can reduce that down ultimately to individuals, mm -hmm. you know, everyone's individual experience. And unfortunately, they refuse to see things in that way. Um, and therefore, you know, we're going to constantly find ourselves you know, in this, you know, on a battleground that actually I don't think we should be involved in. So as much as I can agree entirely that, you know, that, you know, with her um, you know, being vilified for what she said, um, ultimately, the whole conversation around this to me is something that we shouldn't really be reducing ourselves to being involved in because it's well it's we basically one that be sorry, patient for the sorry. next few minutes because uh, we have to talk a bit about it uh no question <laughs> I, I think as well you know uh whoopi goldberg didn't get cancelled is she for that i mean she was like taken off air for a while i mean i would say that that was just simply outrageous not just sick but again uh sickening that kind of characterization of the Second World War, effectively, you know, and what was happening there. Um, <clears throat> how much do you think the knock-on effect will of this will be? Will she? Will that? Will that? Is that the end for her? She's had the whip withdrawn, hasn't she? But what does that actually mean? Do you think there'll be pressure on her just to stand down in Hackney? She's an MP for Hackney. Yes, yeah, so we've had we've had before. <coughs> we had Chris Williamson. I know another Labour chap had the whip removed from him. Um, uh, I don't know whether um, there is any coming back from this for herself. I just think it's such a it's such a mm. mistake to make, and given that you even have people like Owen Jones <laughs> distancing them, when Owen Jones is distancing oh, yes, he did. themselves yes. from you, then I think you, boy, you know. Boy. I think it is it is game over. It's hard to see how be how she'll be selected. But then again, I don't know what her constituency is like. Maybe she's extremely loved by the local party members, and there'll be some battle there. But uh, I, yeah, I think it's very hard to come back from this. Do you think, I mean, you, uh, this seems like a bit late in the day in sense because we, with Corbyn, you know, we had the whole, well, we had those whitewash kind of inquiries 
into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. One which was done by um, Shami Chakrabarti, wasn't it? Which was just a joke of a whitewash. I mean, it was like, there's no problem here, nothing to see here. What do you think is at the root of left-wing anti-Semitism? I mean, you know, that's like a whole series, I know, but... <laughs> You know, well, it, it does seem to be, you know, far more in the open than it was. Well, there's the conflation. Well, partly it's because the, almost because the, the sense that they can, through the identity prism, that because Jewish people are, can be classified as white, as yeah, yeah. that they are in some way a more privileged position than, than others. But I think the left has always had a problem with, um, you know, firstly conflating Zionism and talking, you know, anti -Zion, you know, the anti-Zionist movement and anti-Semitism. Um, you know, they, 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 they detest the fact that you have a very successful Jewish state mm. in the Middle East that has, um, you know, uh, demonstrated that it can hold its own, surround, you know, outnumbered hugely by enemy states over mm. many decades, that has, um, you know, carved agriculture out of the desert, that has mm. turned itself into one of the world's leading technology um, and military powers. Um, you know, a society that actually, um, you know, is largely in its outlook, in its in its uh, um, fundamentals, a very Western society, and and the left, as we know, despise the West and everything mm -hmm. the West represents. So, you know, their 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 hatred of what Israel is and represents, sort of then sort of uh, manifests also in a in a in a broader contempt towards Jewish people generally. Yeah. Um, and you know, and of course there is the fact that. You know they are they do to some extent also recognize that anti-semitic views are um held among certain elements of our immigrant population that they have consistently tried to um and do successfully actually um um largely get the vote from um and they know that actually you know the, the jewish population in the uk is about a quarter of a million and uh, you know they're whereas their target but yeah, anti-Semitism actually brings far more people in line, you know, on side from uh, certain ethnic groups. Um, well, I mean, the, we're Muslims. We're talking about. Uh, well, we are, of course. Yeah. The, the amount, the amount of. Uh, well, it, yes. If you're going to talk about it in crude sort of voting terms, so I say, I, I mean, you know, that might be one of their considerations. It's like sort of three point five or whatever it is now. I mean, uh, Muslims as opposed to. Of yeah, so we've, we've seen definitely in, in recent years an increase in anti-Semitism, uh, certainly on the backs of on the back of the increased Islamic population of this country, and that has been mobilised and used despicably mm. by the Labour Party. On we've seen it in many local elections and council elections and so forth. Not just against Jews, I should also say. You'll remember, I think, at the last May elections was it, or recently, when they were showing uh, Rishi Sunak with. Um, uh, Narendra Modi of India, mm. of course, being a Hindu nationalist le leader, also in, in, inclined to incite Muslim passions on that same sort of thing. So that's been the most recent sort of propane gas underneath anti-Semitism. Mm. But you know, Neil's quite right in what he's saying about the the, the loathing of Israel, which they now equate with Nazism. You know, the the, mm. the greatest slander of all mm. is to actually say that this is the modern Nazi state. And an inability to actually appreciate the fact that you have it—you have the only liberal democracy in the region there, yeah. you know. And the irony, you know, you, you have um, 
you have Israel, which has, I think it's the, the, one of the world's largest gay prides in Tel Aviv, mm -hmm. whereas if you're in any of the neighboring states, you'll be put to death for being gay or stoned and ostracized, and yet you have these sort of deranged lefties going around with signs saying, queers for Palestine, you know, oh, and yeah, you just think, yeah, what, the yeah. hell are you, you, what the hell are you people talking about? Yeah. And of course, it's the, it's the, it's the age-old trope linking, of course, uh, Jews with capitalism as well, yeah. and it's that whole issue of capitalism being the great enemy of the left and there's obviously a very ancient lineage there. So you combine those three together and you have a very, very toxic situation. No, it is, it is worth... Uh, just moving on now, uh, actually, uh, to this new bill, the Illegal Immigration Bill, uh, Rafe. Um, can you just... What actually... What actually the, is the main sort of... Uh, the main points of it that are under contention at the moment? So it's actually, in many ways, a very decent bill and a, a very strong bill. It's the sort of bill mm. we should have been seeing in 2010, 2013, and we would have avoided a lot of the mess that we've had over the last uh, last decade. Uh, but the bill, which today, as we record, is going into report stage in the House of Commons, states that anyone who arrives here illegally and anyone who crosses the channel is arriving here illegally will be immediately detained. 28 for up to 28 days without any bail and without any judicial review mm -hmm. so they'll just be arrested put into a detention center and then removed within 28 days so they'll have no actual recourse to any of the things that the NGOs and the asylum charities love to use to delay the process of removing people from the from the state at great cost to the taxpayer and also clogging up our, our legal mm -hmm. system now that's a, on its, on its, and then when, when they go back, they'll never be allowed to come back in again. But of course, how do you enforce that? You know, I mean, people just throw away their passports mm. and so forth. So on the face of it, it's very good. The idea behind all of this is really to, to follow actually what the, the Danes have done, and that is to create such a real hostile environment, not like Theresa May's wishy-washy one, but one where you know if you come here, you'll have no chance of success, mm. and it's much better to stay in France, stay in Germany, stay anywhere rather than come to these islands. But unfortunately, what we're getting, of course, are these Lib Dems in disguise, the, the left wing of the Tory party, mm -hmm. saying, oh, this is atrocious because, for example, children will also be detained under this measure, as if Suella Braverman is bringing in some sort of far-right fascist uh, agenda. Mm -hmm. It was, it, was, it was only 10 years ago that uh, the Tories actually stopped ch childs being detained. Under New Labour, this happened all of the time. So this is not some radically new proposal. This is mm. just restoring things to the way that they were 10 years ago. Um, but the whole point is, once you start to allow child migrants to actually come in, then that, of course, gives the traffickers a whole new market. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you'll have a huge flood of child migrants coming over. And as we know full well, 90% of the orphans who come here have families back home who intend to, reu to reunite with those children over here eventually. So it's actually just the thin end of the wedge to allow that in. And it's, it's so myopic and it's so ignorant of RMPs not to understand that this is very much about deterrence more than anything else. Would you agree with that, Neil? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's pleasing to see the Home Secretary today um, actually referring to all of the people crossing the channel um, without documentation and with intent to enter the country illegally as criminals. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this is something that we haven't heard said um, in all of this conversation, in all of this debate over however many years. The fact is that you know, according to the 1971 Immigration Act, any attempt to enter the country in this way is illegal, and someone perpetrating that method is criminal mm. and they are actually potentially 
um, they could be subject to the full brunt of the law. That can even include imprisonment, certainly fines, etc. The fact that governments have failed to implement that or you know, actually in any way attempt to enforce that effectively is, is completely shameful. Um, and a, a great irony um, is that under, under Blair, despite the fact that you know, this is what got us started on the, uh, the enormous scale of immigration that we have today, um, Blair understood that, you know, that actually you should at least keep illegal immigration to some extent in control. And it's, it's, it's a great irony that under, under Blair we had much better enforcement of illegal immigration than we have done under, under the Conservatives. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. My, 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 my problem about this is one that we've actually covered a bit before. But I mean, this is an illegal immigration bill, and it's the same thing. You know, one can sort of get, you know, uh, involved and dis discuss it, and all this. But ultimately, you sort of think, you know, there's this issue here, and then there's this issue here. You know, which I wish it had been, in other words, an immigration bill, and not a illegal immigration bill. This is the point, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the thing is that illegal <coughs> immigration has uh, the optics of it um, are very strong. Um, you know the the images of people crossing the channel arriving in thingies all of this and the media lap it up um and it is a great distraction from what you know the fact that we are talking about even now the levels that it's at and they're unprecedented but we're talking about you know numbers in the tens of thousands coming into the uk in this way where we have you know half a million <laughs> net migration into the uk at the last um net, at the last net. count yeah um and that's a million people coming in so um and we are just yeah, and that allows, in a way, uh, it's a distraction technique. In a way, it, it takes people's eyes off of the fact that while we are controlling illegal immigration mm. or attempting to, and let's mm. be honest, once the lawyers get into this, we, we'll see. Um, the uh, you know we are enabling vast amounts of migration through supposedly legal channels, and the problem with this is that you know the disingenuousness with which this is then we are told that people want the public are only interested in control and this is something that is we know is patently untrue the public have consistently said for many decades poll after poll after poll have consistently stated that they don't just want controls they want reductions in fact they want significant reductions in migration into the uk through any means I think that's one of the worst bits of dissembling, actually. Absolutely. You know, where that sort of the public want control. That's what they were Take back voting control, for yes. you know, during, during the Brexit campaign. Uh, shocking dis dissembling, actually. And they sort of seem to be getting getting away with it, actually. I mean, you know, and. Well, there's, there's, no, there's no coverage. As, as, you know, as Neil has quite rightly said, so much attention is given to the illegal migrant crossings. These are alleged asylum seekers. That that soaks up all of the all of the all of the news time, and nothing is ever given no attention. No political party is making a stand on any of this. Um, even or even indeed on you know on on the, on the right of the Tory party, it's only some parties are quite re relative newcomers to this discussion. Um, and of course, it serves the Tory party's agenda very well to actually be seen to be tough on illegal immigration because then there's a general assumption that the Tories are getting immigration under control and of course we, we, we you know it, it's not cynical to say how, how interesting the Tory party is right now that just a few months before the general election mm. they're suddenly getting tough on gender identity mm. they're suddenly getting stuff tough on, on immigration um, and on crime and so forth but uh, yeah absolutely you're quite right you know I mean look less than one percent of the uh, of the population of of, of all those who've come over here by boat that amount to 1% of the people who've come illegally, mm -hmm. uh, whereby we have 42% of the immigrants in this country today have arrived just within the last decade, and that was all under 
the Tory reign. I mean, Neil, you were director of Migration Watch for a number of years. Um, you know, it must be a terribly difficult job. I mean, it, Migration Watch is probably the the only think tank that wanted some kind of limit on migration. I'll put, you know, I'm putting it broadly. Constantly up against these other kind of NGOs and think tanks who never laid their cards on the table and said we're actually for open borders, which is what they are, isn't it? Basically. You know, you would actually have to go on to the media and argue with these people, but migration was always a hostility towards, wasn't there, in certain media? Yes, I mean, the, the, the problem is, as we know, that to a large extent, having these arguments is very difficult because we, we're trying to bring reason, and a lot of the people we're arguing with are not mm. interested in a reasoned debate. I mean, we see this across all areas of, 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 of discussion. Um, you know, they don't like a reasoned debate because obviously they're wrong. Mm. Um, but, um, I mean, institutionally, there are just so many challenges to... to, to to changing what has been you know, established policy now on immigration for, for at least 25 years, and arguably a bit longer. You know, this isn't just about NGOs who are getting huge amounts of funding, mm. you know, far more funding than we could, you know, um, than those who are uh, opposed to the, to the current status quo could, could dream of. Um, they're getting, you know, there's a lot of money coming from central government into some of these trusts and foundations that are looking at this, all taking the view that immigration on the current scale is a good thing. Um, obviously, big business has huge vested interests in maintaining high levels of migration, um, you know, for, for the purposes of keeping labor cheap um, and you know, not having to invest and innovate and mm. you know, mechanize. You know, it's no coincidence that the, the UK has fewer robots per capita than you know, Slovenia um, in this country because businesses have not had any incentive to, mm. to, to mechanize and innovate. Um, you know, we also, you know, face obviously uh, the, the bedrock of the entire immigration industry, as I will call it, is obviously the, the, the legal firms mm -hmm. um, and legal NGOs that are there that are constantly fighting every attempt to reduce or diminish, constantly pushing back on any government policy that you know, even touches upon lowering numbers of migrants. And so, you know, the, you are very much, as much as you know, talking about migration watch, migration watch do a fantastic job. Um, you know, but they are the only voice there representing mm. the representing the voice of the majority of the population on this subject. And you know, it's incredibly challenging to do that um, when you know you are up against a very very powerful um, pro-immigration lobby across all areas of public life. You know, I think if there's one thing that is been catastrophic for public trust in in um, institutions it's been this issue actually for me because you know this one that you know people you you can't oh people say you we were never asked and they're quite right to say we're never asked we were never asked um, and about whether we wanted this uh, but of course that was characterized as being boneheaded for a long time to even say that um, but when you know that nothing that you do is going to change this and of course people are just going to get completely demoralized and fed up with the whole I mean, it's a wonder that they even vote at all you know which i think is one of the reasons they voted so in such huge numbers for brexit yeah and it's worse than saying we were never <coughs> asked because people have actually consciously voted for the tory party which pledged in its manifestos 
in at least three or four elections to bring migration down to the tens of thousands and then to control it. So people were voting with an understanding that this would be delivered on. And yet every four or five years from, from, from Cameron through May, through Johnson, every four years the Tory party will be exposed as having completely reneged on those manifesto pledges. And yet they come back in with another majority at the next election on the same false prospectus. Of a, of a manifesto yeah. and of course that erodes the trust especially now that we've had this seismic once in a generation shift in politics whereby the Tory base now is vastly different of how it was yeah. 10 years yeah. ago including a huge number of former Red Wall Labour voters and many of the old Tory guard have gone on to the Lib Dems uh, but the, but that hasn't been reflected really in the it, it has been reflected by some Tory MPs from those constituencies but as a whole the Tory parliamentary party and the, the leadership are still representing the values of a Tory base that has long ago deserted it because Neil's quite right. People often say to me, well, we can understand why Tony Blair and Peter Mandelson had this experiment with mass migration to basically because 80% of ethnic minorities vote for the Labour Party to flood the nation with ethnic minorities and you will have Labour governments uh, for, for decades to come, as we now see in London, which is a one-party state un, uh, under Khan, under Labour, and all cities in this country which have ethnic min minorities as a majority will have Labour will have Labour governments. So you can understand the Labour Party's logic, but what was the Tory logic? Well, of course, as Neil mm -hmm. said, it's been economic. In just the same way that people think Angela Merkel was being altruistic by opening her door to a million Syrian refugees. Oh, look how lovely we are. No, they were doing that because they needed more people to come into the labor force. And that was the reason, that was the driving force behind accepting those refugees and was to, to actually increase the labor force. In this country, it's because the Tory party is essentially still a neoliberal uh, mm -hmm. philosophy, led by a neoliberal philosophy of economic free markets. And we saw that with Liz Truss. Liz Truss, a former Liberal Democrat, never a Tory, came, came aboard the Tory party. And when she became Prime Minister, what did she want to do? She wanted to open the borders to allow more immigration and to fuel the economy. Completely contrary and out of touch with what the Tory party membership want to do. Actually, yes, and before that, actually, you know, during the, the Johnson era, again, there was this deception that you mentioned in the sense that they were saying, oh, you know, we're, we're dealing with it. But in fact, they were easing weren't they incrementally all sorts of rules relating to immigration and they were ignoring advice <coughs> i mean you know the, the migration um, advisory committee which uh, advises the government on on this subject um quite clearly stated in their reports under the johnson administration that uh, immigration is primarily in this case of low skilled workers mm. was de was not economically um viable and it certainly was detrimental. I mean, it goes without saying, really, but it was detrimental to the lowest skilled and lowest paid people in our society. Um, and the government completely ignored that and, um, you know, liberalised the work visa <laughs> anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there was, there was no interest in actually, um, uh, you know, implementing um, th that advice. And the Migration Advisory Committee was hardly a, uh, an anti-immigration body, <laughs> only for the imagination. Um, but, you know, so there was, you know, once again, a lot of that is simply optics. You know, if you have this independent body that is reporting to you and you can say you're, you know, you're taking their advice on board, A, you don't have to, um, and, and they didn't, mm. and B, it just sort of, it, it, it gives an implication that in some way you are listening to all opinions and all perspectives. I mean, this is talking about Migration Watch, you know, this is something that happened there where you have, you know, where, you know, you, you're, you're the only entity giving um, uh, you know, a, a view from the other side, from, mm. from our side. Um, and 
you know, obviously you have to be there, you have to be doing that because that, that you know, th this must be heard within parliamentary groups, etc. you know, and, and committees in parliament. But actually, you know, the extent to which then you're in a way also by taking this line, enabling them to say, well, we, you know, we, this is, we, we've arrived at our immigration policy through a consultative process. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and we have listened to all opinions. You know, it, it sort of in a way gives sucker to that. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, so, you know, it's a very difficult place to be um, if you're trying to um, actually change things and actually, rep, you know, get the will of the people. Um, uh, yeah, uh, but the co at the conference of the our conference of the weekend, we had two of the smaller parties. We had someone from uh, Reform, Ben Habib, and someone from uh, uh, William Cluston, who's the leader of the SDP. Um, do they offer any? anything new? The SDP, I think, are the <laughs> ones who are closest to what needs to be done, uh, particularly by uh, saying that they want to have, is it a, is it a moratorium or do they want to pause. limit it to a pause? It's a pause. I personally think you need to stop all immigration to this country with limited exceptions for at least a decade, if not for a mm. generation, even though a generation is hard to achieve. But the SDP are the only ones brave enough to actually come close to saying something along those lines. And I don't, and it's so, you know, we've never had in this country a French Gaullist type of political party, mm -hmm. which is traditionally conservative, patriotic, tough on immigration, strong on defence, but also believes in the world, in having a welfare state and protecting the, the most disadvantaged. And it seems to me that if the Tory party adopted the SDP party's manifesto, they would be guaranteed, well, like maybe maybe not now, but in a previous, gener previous years, they would have actually been able to connect properly with that red wall, because that's actually what most British people want. A reform saying anything different, do you know, Neil? Um, it's, I, it's, it's very hard, I think, at the moment to understand to see where reform stands. On yes, this issue. yes. Um, I've not seen anything. I'm not seeing anything obvious. Yeah. Um, I know. I um, saw an article with by Patrick Flynn in the Spectator where he was speculating that <coughs> they might go along with this idea of net zero migration. Mm. Simply, be well, he's just you know the fact that zero is in the title will be enough to. Well, I say fool people, but I mean, it's so unsatisfactory, isn't it? I mean, I got the impression that he was going for net zero simply for the reason you've just said that yeah, it's yeah. the same as the net zero yeah, or carbon yeah. or whatever. It's a catchy summary. Yeah, yeah. But we should perhaps explain to people at home that the uh, the spin that's going on with the government and everybody else, even people on, on the right, as we said with reform, are using this term of net migration figures. You know, net migration figures are so deceptive. So you'll always hear now the government say, well, we've had 500,000 immigrant net, net migration to this country is at half a million, which in itself is absolutely shocking. But what's really shocking is the gross migration figure, <laughs> which, as you mentioned earlier, is one million people. Mm. Now, the net migration figure is basically you, you, you get the total million that have arrived here minus those people who've left the country. So half a million have mm. left, which is why you have net migration. But that's assuming that the people who've left are just the same as the people who've arrived, you know, mm -hmm. that every person is equal to the other. No, because, of course, we know that it's not half a million immigrants who are leaving. It's a lot of people who are white British going to Canada and Australia, New Zealand and, and to Spain. Spain. And uh, the idea that people arriving here will be just an easy fit, culturally assimilated just to the people who are leaving here is a complete nonsense. So we must stop using this term net. It's gross migration. Yes, exactly. Um, but also, it, it, it certainly just obviously meets their purposes, doesn't it? I mean, it, you know, to, to, to do this. Uh, and I think at one point there was even, if I remember, there was some discussion going back in, in UKIP days, whether this, something like this should be the policy, but it was sort of thrown 
thrown out. But it plays. It plays. It's, it's the ultimate liberal de- conceit, isn't it? That the yeah. all you know it, that, that the culture doesn't matter. Yes, exactly. Individuals yeah. Yeah. matter. Yeah. We yeah. simply count them in and count yeah. them out, and who they are, what they represent, what they embody, what their values are, how they relate to the society they're coming into. Um, you know, whether or not that's a deep felt attachment or whether it's simply a purely transactional thing, which in most cases it, it, it is, certainly nowadays, um, you know, that becomes irrelevant. But there's um, this kind of unholy alliance, isn't there now, really basically between free market liberals who do see them, count, you know, count them in, count them out, and that's all they see them as. And you've got the kind of left multiculturalist who basically anything which in any way dilutes the sense of nationhood they'll go for. Isn't that right? And they're both working together, aren't they? Uh, speaking of nationhood, finally, uh, it was St George's Day last Sunday, the 23rd, of course. Um, but it was actually, it passed by, I think we had a nice message from Sadiq Khan, the mayor, didn't we? Um, about St George, St George's Day. There's this usual thing, on, at least on Twitter, isn't it? Where basically it's like with absolute, you know, predictability. Out they will come saying, do you know that actually St George wasn't really English? Do you know blah blah Of course you could turn around, could you not, and sort of say, well actually, doesn't that show how incredibly multicultural we are? You know, that, that we have a saint who wasn't English or whatever. But did you celebrate? How did you celebrate? Yes, well, I, I always, mark, always mark every year, but if, when I can, I got to go, go to Leadenhall Market in London, which usually yeah. has flags and so forth decked out. But I went to see a friend who had a St George's cake, and we cut that, had a glass of champagne, and a little celebration there. But yeah. it was a subdued, but I mean, there's no other way to really celebrate now, no, no. apart from making your own events, because there's nothing being done on any national level. Yes. It is still the case. It, sh- it should be a public holiday, shouldn't it? I think there's a strong argument for that. Um, I mean, I've always lent towards a Trafalgar Day public holiday rather than, a <laughs> <laughs> rather than St George's Day. But I, yeah, I, I can see. Yeah. Um, why, why people might want to see an English national holiday. Um, but I mean, on the other hand, you know, I think we, you know, the, the relationship between England and the rest of the Union has always been very complex. And as much as, you know, I think one of the problems with the, the idea of St George's Day being something to be celebrated, and I have no problem with that obviously myself, but it's simply that you know, historically, it's never been a, uh, a, thing. a grandiose event. It's no, never no. been something that we have. You know, it would almost be a confected, you know, um, thing to for most people to sort of have this as the, you know a day celebrate mm-hmm. because Englishness has always been, you know, like Britishness to some extent, or they are they are slightly different, but there's always been something that we just we don't really have ever felt we need to define. Well, no, but that's that's the crucial thing, um, though, Neil. Is it not? We do have to define increasingly. It I think you we know? might, yeah, we, we we might find ourselves having to define it, but only vis-a-vis. I think, I mean, if we're looking at the uh, the union and we look at the United Kingdom, historically that never needed. Yeah, you know, we don't have a written constitution. We don't. Ha- we've always had a very idiosyncratic understanding of who we are and what we are. Mm. It was a leftist decision mainly under Gordon Brown to de- start start trying to make this a purely civic notion that Britishness was defined by a set of values mm. and we all you know we have to share a set of values to be British and, and anyone who shares those values is British. Um, Englishness has more of an, an ethnic dimension to it you know the notion of being English. Um, it, 
and but the cultural associations of Englishness, whether that's you know cricket on the on the on the green or you know um, uh, you know made nuns going through the yeah, mist yeah, on their bikes. Yeah. Yes, um, all of this really these are things that you know some people will consider to be representative of Englishness. Some will not, in the same way that there are notions of Britishness that some would. Um, uh, um, associate themselves with them, some not. Historically, I think the great tragedy for us, both as English and British people, is that we have to define and assert these things now, that we are expected mm. to say what these things are, rather than simply the historical sense that we were all, you know, we a largely, at least historically and culturally homogenous society, doesn't have to do that. It doesn't have to define itself in, in sort of, um, in by a set of values, it we it knows what it is, and it's it's a, I think it's a sad indictment on the state of our social and political life that we are having to sort of assert, you know, what these things mean rather than just simply be able to live them. But uh, they are very much under attack. It's, it, yeah, it's sad, but it's essential now. I think this is the point. If we don't, because uh, you know, in all in all in all unions, the the strongest member state invariably is the one least likely to identify with itself. So if you look here, English, you know, English nationalism was always, as you say, very subdued, very modest compared to our Celtic neighbours. If you look at the Yugoslavia, the Serbians would always say they're Yugoslavians rather than anything else. Um, if you go to, to, to Canada, Ontarians would always say that they're from Canada, whereas everyone else would say they're from British Columbia or wherever. The English would say that they're British first, whereas the Scots would say, well, no, we're Scottish and we're Irish. But of course, what the English have found, of course, is that um, over, the, uh, over the recent decades, the, the Scots and the, and the Welsh have been able to throw their toys out of the pram and get huge concessions from mm -hmm. Westminster. Um, not only through devolution, which has given them huge powers, but also you have Scottish MPs voting on English-only legislation. Mm -hmm. You've got higher, uh, you've got, you've got transfers of payments to Scotland, which are far in excess of, you know, in terms of NHS per person spending is higher than here. And so the English sort of feel naturally resentful. They don't even have their own English Parliament. And uh, they see everyone else benefiting from the scheme, and it particularly sticks in the craw when all of the great values and things or, uh, and, uh, and traditions of Britain are actually English. Really, it's the common law, parliamentary democracy, the mother of parliaments, the English language, sports. There's so so much of Britain is actually English, and I think they, there's a real need for England to reclaim those as their own. And particularly when you have immigration the way that it is, and this this sneering condescension of the of the of the elites towards English patriotism I think it's quite understandable why English people need to take a stand and you're really seeing that if you look at football matches mm. 30 years ago mm. the Union Jacks have all gone it's now the flag of England mm. for example St George I used to subscribe to this England magazine when I was a teenager oh, good and um, you know this I remember charting the, the sale of St George's Day cards was going exponentially over to, over a 20-year period mm. so there is this resurgent pride in England and I think it's, it's, it's quite right and it's quite necessary. Uh, I think so. It's also a desire to hang on to something. I think actually. I mean, that that football thing is very true. If you you know, if you look at 1966, all Union Jacks, right? If you look at any Euro uh, contest now, it is just Eng England flags. Uh, that's a big change. I saw it in my my parents. They always, without thinking, British. You know, we're British, Britain, blah blah blah. And then, you know, towards the end of their lives, they started calling themselves English. I always make sure to call myself English now because I am English. You know, um, and I also think it's sort of, if anyone can be British, then then almost nobody's British. That's the problem. So, you know, this English resurgence is an attempt, actually, I think, to actually hold on to something. I think that's true. Though I think it's it's <coughs> it's drawn from a 
it's a response to an, a more assertive Celtic nationalism rather than any other factor. To be honest, I, I think, you know, particularly when where we've seen, you know. Since devolution, of course, and you know, and, and particularly with the Scots and the Scots nationalists being so successful and very, you know, quite you know, obviously, quite blatantly anti-English, um, it's almost a sort of acceptable form of racism in Scotland mm. among some people. Um, and the, you know, I think that we've seen this need to sort of recapture Englishness in the face of that, rather than any internal. Um, uh, dynamics between the notion of Britishness and Englishness. Um, I'm not sure about that actually. Uh, I, I think it, they've always been. It's that these others have been defined against Englishness. The Scots were defined against the, the, the oppressor, England, and also the other things. Well, they, they were those nationalisms, Scottish and Welsh, were always considered acceptable because they were broadly seen as left wing. I broadly seen as anti-establishment. Anything. Oh, no, the SNP were originally. Uh, Closer, like, closer to the Nazis than anything exactly. else, I would say. Uh, yeah, they keep, they keep rather <laughs> quiet about that. But I think, yes, I think the, the broader point is, you know, like Cameron said, we don't do flags, David Cameron. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know, he's born of a possibly an old-fashioned Tory romantic idea that essentially we didn't have to and everything. Well, we do have to now. It's as simple as that, I'd say, you know. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it is concerning <laughs> when, when, because Britishness has been so devalued, and so impugned in many ways um, that the obviously that do, that gives sucker to the nationalist movements in, in other countries. You know, I, I, you know, Mike, I would I'm a staunch unionist, um, and you know, I, I firmly believe that actually, you know, to some extent, England has to tolerate a slight imbalance within the union. You know, we are still the principal element within the union mm. by far. Mm. Ultimately, for the most part, let's be honest. The way England votes is how the union is governed. Um, you know, we, you know, I think there is, we have there has to be a slight degree of tolerance unless we have a complete reorganisation of our constitution and create some sort of federal system. I don't see any alternative. So, as much as I don't have a problem, of course, with you know English, you know, assertions of Englishness and St George's Day, etc. Um, I I just see it slightly as more of a. Um, it, we need to recapture Britishness rather than oh, uh, assert Englishness. I, I, I agree. Yeah, I agree, and, and I, for many years, have also supported the idea of a Trafalgar Day or a Battle of Britain Day on September the fifteenth to, to celebrate. But there's also a, a, the, uh, the idea of um, of the, the lack of balance here, where English people are the only ones within the Union who feel that they can't celebrate their national mm. identity, and that's it's the unfairness about that. You know, mm. if you go to Edinburgh and you walk around the Scottish Parliament, you will see the St Andrew's Cross everywhere. Now I remember when when um, we left the European Union, there were three flagpoles outside City Hall, and the EU flag came down. And I wrote to the mayor at the time, and I said, "Look, London is actually the capital of England. You know, <laughs> the English flag should be flying there." But no, nothing at all. You have two logos now flying on those flagpoles. And I thought, why would you be so ashamed that this is actually the capital of England to to fly that flag? Mm -hmm. You have the sneering of of Emily. What's her name? Emily um, Thornbury. Emily Thornbury. Mm -hmm. We had this the, 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 this shrieking banshee on uh, GMB Narinda recently, Cor, yes. uh, saying how that the English have nothing to celebrate for. It's this idea that the the English are uniquely are not allowed to celebrate who they are or to take pride in who they are when actually it was England that made the modern world. England has more pride and more reason to be proud than any other nation for creating the very foundations of the society in which we live today globally from capitalism and democracy to 
to, um, to the Industrial Revolution, to the, the spread of the rule of law and so forth. England's contribution has been unique, and yet we can't celebrate it. No, and I say we are, I didn't regard myself as English, I regard <coughs> myself as British because I actually do believe Englishness is an ethnicity and I won't be English until England separates and there's only an English passport, but I think the English should have that right to celebrate it. Oh, oh no, that question. We yeah, I mean, and, you know, the, any attack on people being able to celebrate that I find completely nonsensical, of course. It's, it's you know, more, you see, it's, uh, it is more in a way, it's an attack on that, but also... Okay, she's a bit of a knucklehead, right? As you say, this Nirinda Kaur. However, what she was saying is something you hear all the time. Essentially this, oh, well, the flag has become associated with the far right. No, no, come on, you've been saying that for years and years. You want it to be, actually. You want it to be associated with that. And also, you don't like flags. As simple as that. You, would, you, 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 you don't want a flag that's not associated with the right anymore. You don't care about that flag. You know, but this is very, very common view, I'm afraid, in our media and in all of our institutions. That's the problem. You know, that's why nothing ever really gets off the ground. I'm not talking about Morris dancing or anything. I'm just, you know, even just a, a celebration, you know, it, as you say, it's very confected. The one they have in Trafalgar Square now, it's very lackluster. I mean, did you know there even was one? They, ha they have one now in, in Trafalgar Square. but. You know, it's it's very very lackluster. You know? Yeah, I mean the problem with St George's <coughs> Day is actually there's not much to do. Right, you get someone on a, on a horse, mm. you can you have Morris done. It's very difficult to actually try to design something that's really engaging, and that's actually where sort of, I think real thought needs to be done in to actually try to create something that is memorable. Have you know the no fireworks, for example, that sort of thing that would sort of. Uh, Sort of making anything, but you know this idea that the English flag is, is is racist. You know, for me, it's the it's the the quintessential image of England is a pastoral landscape with a an ancient parish church with a cross of St George mm -hmm. flying from mm -hmm. it, and that is that's so quintessentially English. Mm -hmm. Look, in the seventies, the Union flag went through the same issue with the mm -hmm. with the National Front. Then in the eighties, you began to see our chaps, Daley Thompson and others, flying the flag at the Olympics. The English flag, in some people's minds, is is um, is um, being denigrated by its associations, but for most people in this country, it's a beautiful flag which symbolises their their pride in their country. Mm. Mm. I mean, I think, I mean, you know, what astounded me with Narinda Kaur's comments, I think they were equally confected um, mm, mm. <laughs> to lots of them. But I, you know, it was the completely. As we should, we, we should, always we get say, from we, that sorry, perspective. We should, we should, sorry, we should say what she said because some of our viewers won't know. Oh yes, no, she said that there was nothing to celebrate. We oppressed mm. half the world. Um, I think it's also the way in which she said it, actually, it's incredibly aggressive. Um, oh, sorry, no, in the way that we've come to expect from people mm. you know, like that, um, but also completely anti-historical. There is no historical context for those claims. You know, that, you know, we can discuss you know, the merits or you know, lack of merit of various elements of imperialism, etc. You know, and we can have those debates cons you know, forever. The, the fact is that she had no interest in engaging in those debates mm -hmm. or it was simply saying that we must scratch this the, the complete failure to understand the historical connotations of the the flag of St. George. Yeah. Oh, she's big um, ignorant. Completely big <laughs> ignorant and spouting these inanities um, you, you know, is simply um, it's almost it's that leftist agenda once again that you have to destroy denigrate or completely ignore history yes. in order to resurrect this grand utopia that they think will replace it. Um, and it's exactly the same, you know, conceit and naivety and you know, uh, vacuity that we expect. But you know, it is unfortunately a very common, uh, you know, sort of uh, view among you know those in broadcasting, as we know, and unfortunately oh, yes. those in other areas of, of you know public life. Absolutely. Um, but it, you know, we know that it doesn't reflect um, 
you know, Joe blogs on the street. Oh, no, absolutely. And it never will. I mean, the interesting thing is if you look back to, oh, God, how many times is Orwell pressed into action these days? Yeah. I mean, but, but um, for that shows up what a great writer. But he said, there's always in Britain, amongst intelligence, have been something, as he put it, so, considered something shameful mm. about English things, whether it's suet pudding or whether it is the common law. Uh, all of the tastes of the intelligence are on of defined by not being English. That that stays right, that, that goes right through to the Bloomsbury group, you know, same thing, a kind of absolute contempt for these people, you know, uh, going out and celebrating uh, Edward VII's coronation, for example. You know, Virginia Woolf talks about who these ghastly crowds, you know, any, any national celebration a little. Well, anyway. remember Cecil Rhodes, you know, I think it was Cecil Rhodes who <coughs> said, remember that you're an Englishman and therefore have won first prize of the lottery of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, we actually, that raises a good point. Um, you know, we said, how, Rafe was saying there, what is there we can do to make something into a celebration? Any uh, suggestions, if you've got, please put them in the comments, won't you? I mean, you know, what, what we could possibly do as a nation? To celebrate, you know, make give it a focus if you like. Um, on that note, thank you very much, Rafe. Thanks very much, Neil, for that. Uh, that's it for Newsweek this week. We shall see you next time. Bye bye. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as three pounds per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.